So today and uh, next week, I'd like to explore the theme of not knowing and keeping going. And I'll be exploring that in a few different ways and suggesting particular practices for us to do in the next week that we can bring back and hopefully uh, compare notes about this theme of uh, not knowing and keeping going. And it's actually a very powerful, powerful theme that goes right to the heart of our, of our practice. Maybe I'll start with a story. In 19th century Poland, there was a Jewish rabbi who had very regular routines. And every day he would uh, leave the synagogue after the services and go across the street towards his home. And he would do the same thing almost on the clock. And there was a police officer who um, was aware of this and uh, was um, going to harass him one day. And so he, um, um, he asked him as he was coming out of the uh, synagogue, where are you going? And he said, I don't know. And the police officer started to get angry. What do you mean you don't know? Every day you walk across the street on your way to go home and you do the same thing every day. What do you mean you don't know? And the police officer started to get very angry. And he actually decided to arrest him. And he brought him to the jail. And just as he was closing the gate or the, uh, what the, the door in the cell, the rabbi said, you see, you don't know. <laughs> and there, you know, when you, when you think of uh, human beings, there's a very interesting relationship between knowing and not knowing. And it's complex. And I, I was reflecting that on one level, there has been this uh, long-term quest to understand, to know how the natural world operates, to know how other human beings work, and the quest for knowledge has been right at the center of um, some stories of the march of human progress and so forth, and the history of humanity, and, and often those stories are framed as stories of the increase in knowledge and the decrease in ignorance or confusion or delusion and so forth. And this uh, quest for knowledge is very uh, central and this quest to really partly to um, have less confusion, less chaos 
You know, and we know, especially recently from studies of the brain, that the brain really, really, really likes routines. You know, it likes to do the same things over and over again. And, um, you know, as one researcher said, the brain really doesn't like consciousness. <laughs> doesn't have to like, to, doesn't like to have to work things out. It would prefer that everything was a routine, right? And uh, in a sense, that's a kind of knowing. We want it to be programmed. We can watch how that operates in ourselves, right? You know, just how we like routines, we follow routines, whatever, and, you know, how we brush our teeth to, you know, our routine before we go to work, etc. right? We, we like routines, and obviously they're, they're uh, often helpful in certain ways. Um, and yet there, there are all sorts of things also that we don't know. And in some ways, we may um, think that we know more than we know. You know for one thing, uh, we don't know um, we don't know um, how long we will live. We don't know uh, when death will come. There's a certain vulnerability we all have. Many of you probably were struck by the uh, death of Ed Lee, right? Seemingly in good health, you know, the, you know, among many circles, beloved uh, former mayor of San Francisco, first Chinese-American mayor, and he was, what, shopping in Safeway with his wife, 10.30 at night, just doing some shopping, he dropped dead. Maybe some of you know better, I did not hear that he had uh, health conditions. Right? I didn't read that in the accounts, right? He just dropped dead, you know, and maybe you know of uh, people who one day were healthy. I, I have a, a friend's uh, wife died about three months ago. Saturday morning she was very well, had a nice breakfast. She felt pain in the afternoon. By Saturday evening, she was dead of a ruptured aorta. Right? Things happen. We don't. There's a way we don't know fully, and there's a certain vulnerability that we don't always want to look at. You know, I was I was thinking in my own experience of um, when I was 20 years old. Let's see. I I. Um, got an old uh, VW van and drove up to Nova Scotia. I was living on the East Coast and drove up to Canada. I remember uh, one day, we were, I think we were leaving uh, the northern tip of Nova Scotia and driving along the coast and um, I was probably going 40 or 50 miles an hour on this coastal road and all of a sudden I realized um, that um, actually I didn't have any brakes. And there was, you know, all, and then I was traveling and I was wondering, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden I saw this car in front of me that had stopped in the lane I was driving in. And I suddenly uh, went off to the right of the highway into the breakdown lane and just managed to get by this car Probably if I was three feet over further to the right, I would have gone over a cliff, right? And I uh, would not be giving this talk. 
How many of you maybe have had something similar where it was close, right? And you don't know, right? Look at us, half of us, right? right? We don't know. There's a quality of not knowing. Um, I'm, I've come down this morning from teaching the Metta Retreat with uh, Sylvia Borstein, Larry Yang, Heather Sundberg, uh, Condé Mason, and Melvin Escobar. And um, Sylvia told a story last night of a monk who was just walking one day, walking around, was in a more rural area, and all of a sudden um, a tiger saw him and started running after him. And the monk ran and ran and was able to um, get to a cliff where, um, and was sort of faced with the circumstance of the tiger in back of him, but then the cliff went down quite a few hundred feet into a gorge. The alternatives did not seem good. And, but, but there looked like there was a little branch, uh, a little bit down below where he could hang on and not, um, this is a Zen story by the way, <laughs> okay. and not be caught by the tiger. And so he jumped down, he caught the branch, and there was a tiger above the gorge below. And then there was, um, a little while later, as he was hanging by the branch, wondering what to do next, he noticed uh, a mouse came out and started gnawing on the branch. <laughs> yeah, in the Zen story, uh, the next moment, he noticed uh, uh, near, the, uh, near that branch another plant growing, and there was a wild strawberry. And the monk reached out and uh, picked up the strawberry and said, how delicious, in the midst of this predicament, right? So it's a Zen story about being in the present moment and so forth. Um, but Sylvia was making the point that more than we might like to think, we're in life, to some extent, hanging by that branch. More than we might admit, you know, there's a, there's a quality of not really, really uh, knowing what will happen, not really knowing personally. We don't know what this world will look like in 10 years. And many of us probably are tuned into that, right? You know, from the point of view of climate disruption or the politics, the economics, the, the uh, growing xenophobia and so forth. Um, we don't know what this will look like. There's a lot of, there's a lot of not knowing. And the, um, there's a really important place in our own practice for both knowing and not knowing. That's what I want to explore. I think maybe before doing that, um, I, I want to mention just again how we have this way that we're really drawn to think we know things. Anyone felt that you have tendencies to really think that you know things? Anyone ever been called Mr. or Mrs. Ms. or know-it-all? <laughs> right, so 
we have these tendencies to want to know, to, so, we, so we may have strong views, maybe stronger, anyone have stronger views than are justified by the evidence? <laughs> right? And so this, it's a very interesting area, and there are many ways in which um, we get very addicted to knowledge, right? We want knowledge, we think with knowledge I'll you know, be able to guide myself in life. And we also, there's something actually that can be very addictive about knowledge. And I think a lot of the television stations, and maybe some of the internet uh, providers, uh, actually make it such that we actually get addicted. Anyone addicted on information? Right? Do we notice that? It's about sort of, oh, you know, uh, let me find this piece of information. Oh, let me know that. Let me know that. And I think, I think some of the uh, news organizations actually are quite conscious on being addictive with certain kinds of music. Um, you know, there's always, what? Breaking news. <laughs> feeding, the, feeding the addiction. Look at that. Look at that in your life. I, I did a retreat once where I meditated, you know, for a while maybe 10 hours a day, and then I was on the computer about three or four hours a day, which is not the way we usually do retreats. But I, I did that, you know, more in a personal style retreat, and, but I got to study my own interests. So I would be on retreat, but I'd be on the computer, I'd go to the, what, New York Times website, get some information, and I noticed, um, you know, there wasn't so much else happening in my life during this retreat, right? I noticed, oh, Let's check again. Oh, let's check again. Well, you know this, right? We know these tendencies. It's pretty, anyone recognize those? I mean, it's pretty, probably close to universal, right? That we have this. So we really can notice these tendencies to want to know. And sometimes, you know, there's this fear of actually being open with whatever is happening in life. Have you noticed that? Some people, maybe us, we at times, we want to have, what, the radio on, the television on, the phone on, always noticing this or that. Something important to know, when I was first meditating, not first, but probably after a certain period of time, I started to notice how I really wanted to control things moment to moment. And that in a way, I actually was fearful of the present moment. I could notice that in my own experience, the way that I actually wanted to be able to frame things or know things conceptually and just to be there in a raw way with the present moment was scary for me. There was fear there and so I tried to, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was hard to be in the present moment. You know, and these are habits probably that are shared by many of us. So there are ways that there are these um, negative or addictive aspects of, no of knowing. Obviously there are incredibly glorious aspects of knowing, you know, and the, uh, you know, the, the rise of different kinds of knowledge, both inner knowledge and scientific knowledge, very important. In so many uh, traditions, spiritual traditions and philosophical approaches, there's a, there's a very important place for not knowing. That's what I want to explore the rest of the time and, and bring, give some practices and bring that in also next week that there, there's a very important place for not knowing, which in many ways means to find, uh, 
find a way to see our relationship to knowing and to understand our ordinary knowing, have the capacity to drop that uh, addictive quality of our ordinary knowing and go beyond ordinary knowing to a kind of extraordinary knowing which has as its um, the passageway to the extraordinary knowing is often unknowing, is often not knowing, it's often dropping the ordinary knowing so we can go more deeply. And so we can see this in a number of different ways. Uh, we can see this in indigenous traditions. There's a, often the uh, practice of the vision quest in the, in the wilderness where one leaves behind the ordinary habits, the ordinary world. And one goes into the wilderness without any expectations, with the hope of gaining vision, with the hope of having something new come that will direct oneself in one's life. There's, in the Jewish tradition, there's a practice by which we remember the mysterious aspects of life by refusing to spell out the name of God fully. Maybe you've seen that, you know, you know, the name of Yahweh is not fully spelled out. In the Christian mystical tradition, there's a long-standing understanding of uh, needing to drop one's ordinary knowing in order to go more deeply. And there's a famous text, I think from the 14th century, called The Cloud of Unknowing. There's a whole tradition in Christian mysticism called the apophatic traditions in which one, they go by way of dropping ordinary knowing so that you can open up to something else that's actually more extraordinary. And some in, in one, one variant of that, which I'll probably talk more about next week, there's a, a sense that one sometimes goes through a protracted period of not knowing called the dark night of the soul, which is actually uh, a state of more advanced practice in which uh, all of one's reference points are gone. And it actually can be ter scary, terrifying. And this is, a, this is a period in spiritual practice where one doesn't know, but it can be, when it's held in the right way, a gateway to deeper knowing. In the Hindu tradition, often uh, when one is asked about the deepest truths or the sacred, the answer is neti, neti, don't know, don't know. There's a, there's a, a recent uh, Zen teacher uh, named Sun Sanim, whose core instruction for his students was, he said, only keep, don't know mind. Just sit there, don't know, don't know. Yeah. In the Tao Te Ching from, from China, it said the Tao that cannot be uh, that can be told is not the way of the eternal Tao. The name that can, not, that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. And probably, you probably know the, the line, those who know uh, don't say, those who say 
don't know. Right? Yeah. Same, very similar thing in Western tradition, the figure of Socrates. Maybe some of you studied uh, philosophy. And there's the figure of Socrates who kept on, he's saying, I am incredibly unpopular because all I say is that I don't know. And everyone else thinks that they know, but when I actually talk to them and examine what they think they know, I find that they don't really know, and they don't like me pointing it out. <laughs> he was actually put to death for this, you know, uh, particularly when he showed that he didn't really know about the society's most venerated religious truths. Right? So there's this long, long tradition of not knowing. And we, we, I want to suggest two main ways of practicing this not knowing. Again, it's a kind of a segue that takes us deep, more deeply. I want, to, I want to suggest maybe, no, maybe three ways. So, bonus. Uh, three ways of practicing not knowing, which I'm going to suggest for the next week. The first is practicing not knowing in our meditation, in our mindfulness practice. The second is practicing not knowing in, when we're with people and in our listening to others. Okay? And the third is practicing not knowing in relationship to those parts of our lives, or that part of our lives, which is unresolved and we don't know what will happen. We don't know, and we don't know how to orient ourselves maybe in some part of our lives. It could be, maybe I know I want to leave this job, but I don't know where else to go. Or it could be not knowing about a relationship. Or it could be, it comes up very much when people are getting close to retirement. You know, I've known this routine for 30 years or 40 years. What comes next? It can be very hard. So, I'm going to talk about those three areas in which to practice not knowing as a, as a fruitful practice, as a practice which can actually take us deeper and maybe um, less familiar because of our emphasis, predilection for knowing, for the way that we're often caught in knowing and, and, and wanting this routine. So we probably have found uh, many, many times that in a way meditation and, and practicing mindfulness is an invitation to a kind of not knowing. Or to another way to say it is to let go of our ordinary knowing, let go of our ordinary thinking all the time. And how many of you have found that it's actually pretty hard to drop the ordinary thinking? It has its momentum. Right? I know when I was first meditating, I, I was a student, and I, I've told variants of this story, but I really was just, you know, I, I, my interpretation of being a student was that I was supposed to be thinking all the time. And I come to meditate, I just continue thinking, it's pretty hard to shut off, right? And it actually was a big practice just to, first of all, notice my thinking so that it wasn't so dominant, so that I could actually be open, and again, like for many of us, it was a big revelation to be able to be with a sunset and not be dominated by thinking. To actually have an openness towards the sunset without thinking all the time, without thinking, oh, this is so cool, I should take a photo, or let me tell someone else about this. 
great sunset, or this is the coolest sunset without actually being there, without actually noticing it. And so part of the development of meditation was learning to simply be present, and we'll find that openness is a related quality. You know, openness to moment-to-moment experience, openness to another person. There are aspects of not knowing simply in being open. Because that openness means I don't need to control, I don't need to know necessarily what will happen. I can just be there and rest on my, rest on my, my good heart and my wisdom without knowing what will happen in many situations. Sometimes situations that are maybe that we interpret as dangerous, it can be helpful not to be so open. Right? So I, I don't want to say we do this in all circumstances, but there's that, that quality of openness, not being so much in the past, not being so much in the future. From the Buddha, do not pursue the past, do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is, the future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. So part of our meditation is learning to be open, simply being with the breath, simply being with the sunset, simply being with the tree, interpersonally simply listening to the person without thinking what we'll say next, having that quality of openness. And it's a meditative training to get there. Not easy, right? And, and along the way, we notice all of our habits, don't we? All of our habits about um, the way our minds work, the way our minds jump to interpretations. Can I just be present? And so it's very important in practice to notice the way our minds work and notice the habits in order to let go of compulsive knowing or habitual knowing. We have to see how it works. You know, we have to see, oh, here's my habit, here's my pattern. And that's a big part of our practice. I'll invite that next week. Notice your habits when you meditate. Notice your habits when you're listening to others. What are the habits of my mind that make it hard to be present, that make it hard to be with this kind of, of not knowing? So a second way that we can really be present is through listening. Through listening carefully. Listening carefully to others, listening carefully to ourselves. I mean, meditation itself is often understood through the metaphor of listening. You know, some of you may have seen the Tibetan images of Milarepa, who sits in meditative posture with a hand cupped beneath the ear, listening to the world listening to the mind. And listening is a uh, uh, capacity that requires, in a sense, that we have openness and that we're, um, that we're not, as it were, full of ourselves. <laughs> you know, some of you know also a very famous Zen story of a um, uh, professor who comes to study with a Zen teacher. And the Zen teacher invites the professor in and says, please, have a cup of tea. And then the uh, uh, Zen teacher says, let me pour you a cup of tea. And um, 
has this cup of tea offered and is sort of pouring it right above the professor's lap and pours the tea, but then the cup is full and keeps on pouring. Keeps on pouring, the professor's getting really wet and getting, you know, like, what is going on? And then, um, and then the, uh, the professor says to the Zen teacher, um, my cup is full. And the professor says, yes, your cup is full. <laughs> and then says, just so, in order to receive um, uh, Zen, you must empty your cup. Your cup is overly full. <laughs> we have no historical record of whether he got it, but that was the teaching. Right? And so we, we see, you know, we try to listen and see what gets in the way of listening. And we do all sorts of things to, that often make it hard to listen. I remember I was for about three years, I was, um, uh, a, I was the chair of a, graduate, uh, of a graduate school, the chair of faculty for a graduate school. And one of the areas I dealt with was complaints. And usually I would talk to other teachers who were complaining about their colleagues. <laughs> and they would go to me as if they would be going to daddy, wanting me to, you know, no doubt, come down hard on the teacher who is the uh, you know, intended recipient of the complaint. And I found myself um, over and over again carrying out the practice of telling the person who came to complain, I think you should arrange to meet with the person, talk to the person, and try both of you to listen to each other. And I said that over and over again. I often thought this is what I'm paid to do. I'm paid to just tell people to listen to each other. Whether they did, I, I can only suggest that. But that's, that was, it's, it's not easy, is it? Right? How easy is it to listen, particularly if there is a difficulty or conflict? Right? How can we listen? And listening sometimes means listening for the words. And sometimes it means listen, listening for what's beneath the words listening for the emotions, or listening for what matters to the person. You know? So I want to invite that as a practice for the next week. Practice listening. See what makes it hard for you to listen. See what helps you to listen. See if you can listen beneath the surface, to listen, to listen deeply to another person. One person I studied with, a man named Johann Galtung, he said that the core capacity of a peacemaker, and he worked a lot in uh, resolving conflicts, transforming conflicts, he said the core capacity of a peacemaker is the ability to listen carefully. Right. So very, very fundamental. And that actually listening openly is so important for conflicts because it makes possible creativity. It makes possible something new. And I, I've myself um, been invited to be a kind of mediator quite a, quite a few times. And I found that I really love the uh, experience of being with people who are conflicted and trying to help structure situations of listening. Often it would mean, you know, to invite people just to have the chance to speak without being interrupted. Each person could say what's there and invite them to use language 
that is not judgmental of the other, that's not blaming, and as much as possible, even avoiding, you know, interpretations. Just speaking about one's own experience, you know, goes a long way, you know, in, in helping to work with, with conflicts. And it's not always easy for people, you know. I remember one uh, couple uh, that I was invited, they wanted me to help work with them on communication. And so I started to ask them, please speak a little bit about um, the difficulty that's there. And one person spoke up and the other person said, no, that's not it. And then, and then I asked, okay, could you, could you talk about the, uh, what's the conflict about? And started speaking and the other person said, oh, no, that's not it. <laughs> and so uh, uh, we spent the next hour and a half uh, working to come up with one sentence which could be agreed upon by both people which describe the situation. And then things could move. Right? But it took time, so it's not easy, not easy to, to uh, listen in that way. And then there's a, there's a third area. I've talked about working with not knowing in meditation, uh, working with not knowing in listening. And we, we could really generalize uh, working with not knowing in meditation by also talking about just can I be present with the tree? Can I be present with the sunset? Can I be, have that quality of mindfulness? Because mindfulness requires a certain kind of letting go of habitual knowing in order to know in a more deep way. And then there's this third area, which is really uh, interesting, which is that often in our lives, we enter into a period of not knowing, often in transitions. I don't know um, the next job. You know, I mentioned I don't, I'm nearing retirement. I don't know what will come next. And it can lead to a lot of anxiety, right? We can feel that, oh, I need to know. And it's interesting because it's really crucial in these periods of transition. Some of them may be quite natural, you know, in the developmental cycles, you know, someone might leave school and not know what the next step is, right? It could be that, it could be, uh, you know, um, being fired or something, or a job ending and not knowing what the next job is. It could be a relationship ending and not knowing what comes next in that way. It could be, um, it could be hearing, feeling something else calling and, uh, and not knowing what it is. Or it could be, again, could be like retirement is, is a strong for, for many people in that way. I was thinking of one uh, example from my own life, um, one important transition, which was about almost 20 years ago, when I was, uh, I was teaching at this graduate school and I was just feeling like I hadn't devoted enough time to spiritual practice. And I wanted to have this period of openness. I wanted to have an open time so I could have a sense of what was calling. I had a sense, I had a sense that something wanted to come out of me. Something was calling me, but I didn't know what it was. Intellectually, I had a sense of it, but I didn't feel it in my guts. And so I actually was able to uh, develop a sabbatical where I only worked, I think I was, uh, I was working like five days a week, five days a month, I should say, five days a month, and I was getting paid a half salary, so I could actually make it work economically. 
And uh, I had a lot of time. I also arranged to have two months uh, in the summer completely open and two months in the winter open, so I did a two-month meditation retreat. And I didn't know what would happen, but um, I needed to have that space for something new to come. I needed to have open space when I found that being busy, and this is key for transitions, when we're busy, sometimes there's no space for the unknown to come into being. There's no space for what's new. And so, in those transitions, we often have to exist in a time when we don't know. In a transition time when we don't know. And I remember some of those times I would have days where I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was ang- it was, uh, sometimes there was anxiety. Right? It was not, oh, oh, gosh, I'm on vacation, wonderful, I can just do what I like. There was, there was some anxiety about it. And anyone who's moved into retirement probably has experienced that at times, right? Not knowing, wanting to know. Right? And it was hard. And um, also from others, I had a lot of pressure. Oh, you have open time now, please do this. Do that, right? Do this. And people, you know, because I, I had to get, I let go of things. I was the, also the co-editor of a journal. And uh, I, I said, I'm just going to stop that, right? And the person who was like the producer of the journal said, without you, everything will collapse. <laughs> a little bit complimentary, but, you know, uh, but I, yeah, I said, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, and I had to let go of things and open up space. And it was not always easy, but uh, it made possible something new happening. You know, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of stories like that that I that I have found. Let me see if I can yeah find these. Um, there was a way uh, some of you there there are a lot of these kind of stories in the life of Gandhi. Gandhi when he left, uh, some of you know that he did a lot of work in South Africa where he first worked out his guidance with nonviolence, and um, he wanted to move back to India. But he didn't want to just keep on working, even, even though he knew that his work would be devoted to the independence of India. And he said he took a year, um, <clears throat> he took a year just to remember, he had been 20 years in South Africa, he said, I want to really reacquaint myself with India. And he took a year, he said he wanted to walk, go travel around India and listen with his ears open, but his mouth shut. Just to listen, just to have this open period for something new to happen. There's another very powerful story from Gandhi, which I sometimes tell, which is that of uh, what happened probably like 15 years later, when he had been very, very active, became a leader. This was 1929. And there, uh, the Indian independence movement was at a crossroads. And Gandhi said, I do not know what to do. And he said, I need to just do nothing for a while, and the answer will come to me as, as to what comes next. And so he just sat on, he sat in his uh, house, you know, in his community by the river. He often sat on the veranda of his house and just watched the river go by. And he was doing this for weeks, and people were saying, hey, what should we do? You're Gandhi, tell us what to do. You know, you should know. He said, I do not know, 
but I know that if I wait, the answer will come to me. And he waited and waited, and it was six weeks of just sitting and waiting, and then he said, I know now. So there was a period of unknowing, and then there was knowing that came. He said, I know now, I will, we will march from our community 250 miles to the ocean, and we will go against the British law not to make salt. Believe it or not, the British said, we have the monopoly on making salt in India. And salt was necessary in that time before refrigerators for the preservation of food, very central. And the British held a monopoly, and Gandhi said, we will go and make salt. I think he started with 150 people. By the time they got to the ocean, 250 miles later, there were 10,000 people. Then they started a campaign. The British came down really heavy, really, really brutal. You know, thousands of people arrested, a lot of people brutalized. And in the eyes of the world, in many ways, the British uh, legitimacy for occupation, which was sort of like, we're the British, we bring civilization and good taste to the world, <laughs> right? And then the images showed them police officers hurting thousands of people. And there was something about the uh, colonial occupation which was broken at that point. And this came out of uh, not knowing. You know? And there are a lot of stories like that which are very, very powerful. Um, some of you know the work of Carl Jung. You know, and he had been a collaborator with Freud. And at a certain point, he felt like he needed to go in his own direction. And he, he started a period that, um, and this is described if you want to read about it, in his, uh, his autobiography. What's, what's that called? Jung's autobiography? Anyone remember? Okay. <laughs> But you can, you can find it. Uh, uh, what's it? Dreams and... I don't know. I think Dreams is in the title. But it, he talks about this a lot. And he said that he, he actually stopped. The only thing he did was he kept, I think, seeing patients just a little bit every day. But mostly he dropped out of everything. And he basically did nothing for much of the time. It was very hard. He said that this was a period in which he had a confrontation with the unconscious. That he made this space and things happened to him. He had all sorts of experiences. He said, after the parting of the ways with Freud, a period of inner certainty began for me. It would be no exaggeration to call it a state of disorientation. I felt totally suspended in midair, for I had not yet found my own footing. And so here the invitation is to see how we may have unresolved parts of our lives. And can we listen deeply and not prematurely come to answers? Can I be with the unknowing, even though it's sometimes hard? And so it's like, can I be with the unknowing, knowing that it will be sometimes uncomfortable? Because it really is about, can I listen deeply for what wants to come out? You know? I truly believe that each of our lives 
are guided by something deep. And one, one thing we do in meditation is we get more in touch with that. What are the, what's the deep expression of my life and my gifts in this world? That's why we're here. We're here to support each of us going deeply, finding what that deep personal vision is, that deep personal vocation is, that can help us to express our own gifts at whatever phase of life we're at. And that there's a voice that's calling us. Sometimes we get the full vision, the full sense of, oh, the big picture. Sometimes we just get a sense of the next step, which I think is really, really important. Sometimes we just get the sense, this is calling me. This is calling me next. And I, I think, again, to, to be with this not knowing in relation to our own personal journey, we have to allow adequate space, not try to know too quickly, be with, sometimes be with anxiety and disorientation and confusion. We have to clearly have some kind of confidence and faith that there is a deeper, <laughs> a deeper part of me that wants to come out. So this is another dimension of our not knowing. So again, my invitation for this coming week is to see if you can work with all three of those practices of not knowing. First, in meditation, can you take an intention at the beginning of the sitting? Can I be here with openness, with not knowing what will arise? What, it, what it will occur in your mind has never happened before in the exact same sequence. Even though a Stanford study showed that 93% of our thoughts are repeats. <laughs> but even so, the mix of them, what's happening in your experience, has never happened in the evolution of the universe before. Can you have even a sense of some reverence to your own mind, to your own experience? Can you invite that sense of mystery at the beginning of a sitting? Openness, not knowing. That's the first practice. Second is, can you practice listening, especially being with others? Notice your tendencies to make listening harder by whatever, a variety of things. Thinking out what you'll say, not really being open, etc. Can you listen more deeply beneath the surface to another. What are the emotions? What really matters for the person? Notice any tendencies to judge, polarize, etc. Powerful practice. And then the third practice is see if you can identify maybe some unresolved part of your life and see what it would mean to have a sense of not knowing, to have some openness to listening deeply for your, the guidance that comes from your own being in some part of your life. So I'll, I'll expand this uh, sense of uh, working with not knowing next week and hear from uh, what we've discovered. Let me end with uh, just a, one of my favorite passages, and this is from the uh, poet Roca, 
And this is especially about this third aspect of not knowing in relationship to our own journeys. And I'll, I'll end with this. Be patient towards all that is unsolved, unresolved in your heart. And try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. In other words, the answers would be intellectual or premature. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So this can help us to develop not knowing and still keep going. Thank you. So any, any thoughts, questions, uh, spontaneous creative ideas, anyone through the talk resolved some major issue in your life? Great, we have uh, up front and then there's a chain room. Please. Um, so, well, a couple things. One, I just notice when I'm clutching it, not knowing, yeah. it really helps if I can just reframe it to start with I wonder. Yeah. So I wonder what's going to happen next. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm vaguely remembering a poem I wrote decades ago, but it's, it was What If. Yeah. And it was something like, What if we could say, I don't know not with shame and despair, but with awe and humility. Yeah. And I can learn. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. Yeah, let's see. What if I could say, I don't know, not with shame and despair, but with awe and humility. But with awe and humility. And I can learn. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And something I can look it up. And it's beautiful. It's a practice, isn't it? See, and it really points to the different aspects of the practice that partly we have to see what makes this hard, right? which would be the shame, the despair, the anxiety. We want, you know, you know to get to, you know, remember the larger trajectory is to move from ordinary knowing to not knowing to extraordinary knowing, which is, can, can be more intuitive and be with our depths, right? And so along the way, we have to see what gets in the way of being, having that openness of not knowing. And again, it could be the shame, the despair, the self-judgment, the anxiety, the fear, and so forth. Yeah, so that's, that's great. And again, it's, um, I think the other thing that sparked me is that it really points to the way that this is really uh, reframing things to be like, you know, it's said in some, some uh, schools actually, to be a lifelong learner, to have learning be at the core of one's life. You know? And I know, I know I was thinking for myself, I was, I was kind of raised to be, I don't know if I was raised to be, but I became a, kind of a perfectionist. Anyone have that tendency? Okay. And at a certain point I could see that perfectionism was in contradiction with actually with learning anything. 
because if I was really perfect, there was nothing for me to learn. And I, and I wouldn't learn anything. <laughs> and yet I wanted to learn something. I said, hmm, should, maybe this isn't all that's cracked up to be. Okay. Um, please, uh, Jane, up front. A little closer. Um, we were talking about me and his dad, and it was like Safeway. Oh, no, no, I, I could feel myself yeah. controlling the situation. Like, yeah. if that happened to me, yeah. I don't want to be in Safeway. I want to be in the hospital. And, and the players around, what, what is fate? Yeah. You know, I mean, we're all in such an unknowing situation yeah. constantly, and, and that unknowingness. And what happens um, can be very life changing. Yeah. Yeah. Nicely said. Yeah. yeah. And so this is uh, this is a, a general invitation in the next week and, and beyond, if you wish, to bring that theme of not knowing in more deeply. And I suggested three ways. Maybe others occur to you. Yeah. Other thoughts, comments, uh, stories. I think right next to you. Yeah. Okay, and you'll be next. Okay. This is just a little aside to Nancy's comment. And sometimes when you're in a group of people, or even with one other individual, who looks to you for knowledge, yeah. and a question comes up or a topic comes up, and you say, I don't know. And it startles them, but at the same time, it's this burden that you carry around with you because you're supposed to be knowledgeable, yeah. it's just dropped, and it is so releases so much tension, and it also opens up the discussion to the other person, yeah. or the, uh, the rest of the group. Yeah. We're not looking to you to, to you for valid information of the facts. Yeah, yeah, great, uh, great to yeah. See what it feels like when you say, "I don't know." We could we could do a mantra together. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, one thing I was thinking about in relation to not knowing is um, is controlling aspects of your life. And when yeah. I was even into my forties, I didn't have trouble walking away from jobs, just walking away from my life, not having health care for a period of years. Yeah. And in my sixties, I find myself feeling like I need to control all aspects of my life that have to do with security. Yeah. So that's, that'll be my work for the week. Yeah, and how, how would you relate that to the theme of not knowing? Or that, you're, that as we, you know, as we, uh, you know, come into uh, 60s or, or older, that uh, uh, security matters more? Yeah, something like that? And yeah. then that having, you know, having, uh, knowing how those needs are met seems more important, Yeah, I, I think that the need for the security is the need to know, Yeah, and I also think it's fear-based. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also based on a certain amount of uh, insight that um, I may be more likely to have, need medical care than when I was in my 20s. Of course, not an absolute, but... Um, generally true, right? right? So, again, we, we want to, um, I'm, I'm emphasizing the not knowing, but of course, 
having knowing and um, certain degree of security is also very important. You know, so you know what, what one thing I didn't say that maybe can help here. The the problem is not knowing. The problem is whether we approach knowing wisely. That's how I would say it. So. We can, we've, I pointed to ways that knowing can be an addiction, can be something that gets in the way of things and so forth. Obviously, there are many ways in which knowing is very important. So the question is, what's a wise relationship to knowing? And, and it could, you know, could have as a result saying, well, it's important for me to know how these needs are being met, rather than say, okay, whatever. Yeah. Does that make some sense? Yeah. So that, that's, that's an important point that the whole question here is to live with, with uh, wisdom and wisdom in relation to how we approach knowing. And to do that, we have to investigate it. Yeah. Any time for one more? Anyone else? Okay. Uh, I want to go back to last week's assignment with um, one of the things that I um, wrote down was um, to let go of yeah. my quick responses to my sister, yeah. and, like in anger, and that I find that I I can't I can't let go. I it's like everything bothers me now. <laughs> in this consciousness where it didn't think for. So it's, yeah. it's, been, it's been interesting. Yeah, well, what you can have is sort of like a, a maybe like a, a way of wisely responding that is, is based on the realities. I was thinking of my colleague, uh, Larry Yang, and I won't be able to quote this exactly, but he basically you know, this, to paraphrase it in your situation, be something like, may I not uh, be reactive towards my sister? And if that is not possible, possible, may I be less reactive towards my sister? <laughs> and if that is not possible, may I know when to uh, um, not speak <laughs> with my sister? And if that is not possible, may I have compassion for us both? <laughs> Yeah, so that, that's, uh, but you get the idea, like they're, they're actually, even if you're really filled with reactivity, it often can be more helpful not to, not to speak, right? Or to, there's always a wise response, no matter what's going on in your mind. You know, no matter what's, even if it's really reactive, really, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm just filled with anger and reaction, uh, the wise response might be to pull back, call a timeout, and that's better than not doing that, right? So there's always uh, there's always a wise uh, there's always a wise response. But having that kind of uh, game plan, as it were, where you have the sequence. Okay, okay, this is the best. Okay, that's not possible. Number two, second best. Okay, that's not possible. Number three, third best, and you know you may need eighteen, <laughs> right? But something like that. Yeah, I'll try to get Larry's uh, actual version. It's very nice. Um, Great, so how many of us are uh, ready to have the intention for next week to work with one or more of these uh, themes of unknowing? Okay, great, and, and um, wonderful if people come back, share. I'll give, I'll give maybe a little more room for sharing about how, that, uh, how that's been. 
Remember that the three areas are, uh, again, one or more of these, not knowing in our meditation, and can be also extended to being with nature and so forth, just being mindful. Secondly, not knowing in listening to others. And then thirdly, kind of not knowing in relationship to something unresolved in our lives. Okay? And just set your intention now. Take, take uh, 30 seconds or a minute just to set your own intention for which of those three, maybe all three, you want to work with. And a way that you can remind yourself to do that. What's going to help actually help you remember to do that? And then we end with the traditional dedication of merit. May uh, the fruits of our session be there for us, for those in our lives, and also for others. That our horizon of our practice is to benefit ourselves, but also to benefit others. Ultimately, all others. Thank you so much. It's been fun to explore not knowing. I wasn't sure how it would be. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.